This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Name this opera. It's in Italian, it's making its return to the Metropolitan Opera this fall, and it was inspired by a spaghetti western. Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. La Fanchula del West The Girl of the Golden West, was Puccini's second opera based on a play by David Belasco, and its world premiere was right here at the Met in 1910. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode, we feature a pre-performance talk with Nemet Habashi, leading us through the romantic tale of that rugged outlaw Dick Johnson and the lovable barmaid Minnie. Puccini, like any good composer, had, after much searching, found a colorful, exotic, enticing drama set during the American Gold Rush and set it to music. He arrived in New York a month early to help supervise the production of his opera and have a very good time being feted by the city's hoi polloi. He swanned around New York with Astors and Ogilvy's et al. The Vanderbilts threw a party for him and he wrote his wife that their son was having a fine time as well, having lost his heart to a ballerina. Puccini was also the darling of the members of the press who were having a field day about this new opera in the good hands of New York's theater and musical establishment. The Metropolitan Opera, which had opened in 1883, had for its impresario Giulio Gatti Casazza, who would be the longest-running impresario the Met ever had, 27 years. The conductor would be Arturo Toscanini. I think you can recognize him. Old friend to Puccini. The American theater producer, writer, and director, David Belasco, with the white collar, would be directing the opera that is based on his play, The Girl of the Golden West. And with these people is Giacomo Puccini. Many players had a stake in this opera, and the stakes were higher than usual. Please note the appropriate jargon, since the plot of Fanchula turns on a game of poker. America, barely 100 years old, officially was still finding its identity, and banking on Puccini's opera to put the country on the world's opera stage. After all, every American, the wealthiest to the poorest, had arrived as an immigrant 
except, of course, for the Native Americans. The original Mr. Astor was a butcher in Germany whose two sons went from the town of Waldorf in Germany to London to sell flutes. Then it was on to the U.S. to sell pianos, furs, and real estate. Some Americans were still grappling with a kind of inferiority complex. While searching for what really represented this new land, they still felt the need for Europe's imprimatur. They didn't realize they had a perfectly grand identity of their own in the making. An opening of a new Puccini opera at the Metropolitan was supposed to give a kind of legitimacy to what was seen as a symbol, opera. Worthy New Yorkers were not quite ready to be represented as cowboys and Indians. They didn't appreciate being relegated to the exotic world of gypsies, turbaned potentates, think Mozart, abduction from the Seraglio, or ancient Egyptians. They didn't like being grouped with the other, these somehow lesser beings that populated the operas they had come to know and love. They preferred to fancy themselves as Europeans, if possible. The necessity to hold on to things European came in many forms. Take the story of Mrs. Thurber. In 1892, 18 years before the Fanchula opening, Mrs. Thurber, whose husband had done quite well in the grocery business, decided that to give her fledgling National Conservatory of Music of America a boost, she would import a well-known European composer to do so. She chose the Czech composer Antonin Dvorak. Dvorak, or technically Mrs. Dvorak, accepted the offer when the fee turned out to be $15,000 a year, 25 times what Dvorak was making in Europe. Dvorak arrived in New York and promptly befriended a student at the school, Harry Burley, an African-American singer who taught him all about spirituals and American ragtime. Dvorak evoked the spirit of America in his music for the Symphony No. 9 from the New World. Dvorak was also drawn to Native American lore like the story of Hiawatha and the poem of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And as for Mrs. Thurber's wish, her conservatory turned into the Juilliard. It was a win-win. And when Carnegie Hall opened in 1891, Andrew Carnegie invited Tchaikovsky to come to New York to conduct. Tchaikovsky came all right. He was horrified by the skyscrapers. Nine stories. <laughs> he felt homesick for Russia, and he did not have a very good time of it. But he did make some money. But in the art world, American painters were discovering that the Catskills and the Adirondacks had as much to offer as the European Alps or a seascape or things English. The English painter Thomas Cole arrived in America and started what became known as the Hudson River School, creating an American art movement. This is Thomas Cole. Painters like Frederick Church and Asher Duran took their cue from him. They proceeded to paint endless views of the Taconic Parkway. <laughs> Much of the Hudson River School collection is to be seen today in the Wadsworth Athenaeum and in New York's Century Club, which impecunious American painters gave paintings of their own instead of Jews when they couldn't pay them. So that was one way to get away with that problem. Wealthy Americans eventually began to commission their artist landsmen instead of only picking up works on their European junkets. And then, of course, there's Henry James. <laughs> but then that's at least a thesis 
or a seminar or a lifelong study. Suffice it to say, James was a major player in transatlantic literature. He knew and admired the feudal civilizations in Europe. He chose to live abroad, primarily in England, but he admired the brash and assertive world that he was born into. He wrote of Americans trying to breach the barriers they were presented with, trying to infiltrate European society. One remembers all those wealthy American princesses for whom the greatest aspiration was to marry an English title, and if it came with a dank, broken-down castle, so much the better. America sought to imitate Europe in yet another way. Aspirations of the young country involved becoming a colonial power. U.S. tentacles were already in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Panama. Despite their ambivalence, Americans went through a slow process realizing slowly that they not only had their own identity and their own cultural style, but that these were rich in their own right. Also, that the country was buttressed up by the continuous arrival of immigrants who not only brought with them the wealth of their cultures, but an adventurism and courage. All of this enhanced and enriched the country. That no-holds-barred adventurism epitomized itself in the California Gold Rush, which brought 300,000 gold diggers to California between January 1848 and 1855. In 1831, John August Sutter, a Swiss adventurer, arrived in the territory of California and went up the Sacramento River. In 1841, he founded Fort Sutter and he bought Fort Ross from Russians who settled there. And on January the 24th, 1848, one of his employers, James Marshall, who hailed from New Jersey, came to him with the first nugget of gold found on Sutter property. By 1849, the gold rush was on and the first miners on the scene became known as the 49ers. With news of the discovery of gold, the little-known area in Northern California and Sierra Nevada was soon invaded by prospectors, most of whom had very little to lose. They were the down and out, the disenfranchised, the black sheep in their families, the recently arrived immigrants. They sold everything they had and headed west. The courage of it is staggering. The gold rush brought with it every social ill, crimes, prostitution, disease, alcoholism, Chaos reigned. It has been suggested that the gold rush could only happen in the American West. Europe was too hidebound with its long feudal history and social disciplines set in granite over centuries for this to happen. California was tabula rasa, a clean slate. Maybe not so clean. The California gold rush made a few people absurdly rich and others indigent. A total of $2 billion was extracted during this period. San Francisco went from a settlement of 200 souls to becoming a city of 36,000 by 1852. Among the 49ers were Italians. Italians knew a great deal about this wild country founded by a landsman. They extolled the first American, after all, Cristoforo Colombo, and Amerigo Vespucci the Italian explorer who gave the country its name. Furthermore, an Italian by the name of Lorenzo da Ponte had settled in New York City and established the first Italian department at what would become Columbia University. 
this after he'd written the libretti for Mozart's greatest operas, Don Giovanni, Figaro, Così fan tutte. This same Lorenzo da Ponte had established the first opera house in New York. There's an old Italian saying, Italians arrived in America hoping the streets would be paved with gold. When they arrived, they found the streets were not paved with gold and that the streets weren't paved at all and that they were expected to pave them. When the Italian immigrants found themselves among the many who did not strike gold, they went into the services honed in the old country, stonemasonry, an Italian specialty. They helped build the mansions for the newly rich and for the universities that their children attended. This is a portion of Yale University. Sicilians went into the fishing industry. Many Italians went into agriculture and winemaking. Girardelli of Girardelli chocolate fame in San Francisco started out in the wine industry. The newly wealthy Italian-Americans supported Italy's efforts at unification, especially Garibaldi, who did a stint in Staten Island during a brief period when he was not creating havoc elsewhere. Italians knew about the Wild West from the novels of Bret Hart, The Gold Rush, and The Outcasts of Poker Flat and Stories of the Wild West. And one Emilio Salgari, who was a writer of many a swashbuckler in Italian, usually pirates and such, wrote a series based on the American West. One was called La Sovrana del Campo d'Oro, the Queen of the Golden West, uh, the Golden Camp. And then there were the rather non-PC Aventure fra le pelle rossi, Adventures of the Redskins. The Wild West shows of Buffalo Bill Cody had gone to Europe in 1889. You may remember Paul Newman as Buffalo Bill Cody in Robert Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson. The real Buffalo Bill Cody killed 4,000 buffalo. He started out riding for the Pony Express. He was a Union soldier during the war. His family were abolitionists. And after the war, he became an Indian scout. He formed his own company of show horsemanship. And that was the beginning of the Wild West shows. They would reenact the scalping of a Cheyenne warrior in the incident of War Bonnet Creek. And for the public's added entertainment, there would be stagecoach robberies and Indian attacks on wagon trains. The company grew and was enormously successful playing all over the country and making several trips to Europe. One of the stars of the show was Annie Oakley. She was known as Little Miss Sureshot. She could actually hit a playing card while it was in mid-air, and she could shoot by the age of 15, having mastered the skill in order to go hunting because she had to help keep the family alive after her father died. There were many siblings. He, she joined Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show, which also starred Frank Butler, whom she married, and another member of the troupe was Sitting Bull of the Sioux tribe. They toured France and Spain and Germany, where Annie Oakley shot the ash off Kaiser Wilhelm's cigar. <laughs> the company performed for Queen Victoria in England and King Umberto in Italy. And all of this is chronicled in the Irving Berlin musical Annie Get Your Gun. After 1,147 performances on Broadway, it was made into a musical. In 1950, 
in the movies. It starred Betty Hutton and Howard Keel as Annie Oakley and Frank Butler. Here is a clip from the end of the movie that is the parade of the whole company, which was a part of every show. And if it looks like Busby Berkeley, it is. <laughs> because the first director on the show was Busby Berkeley, but he didn't actually direct the whole of it. We're going to be partners. Partners? Oh, Frank. Butler and Oakley? In alphabetical order, there's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that resist. <laughs> Sigmund Romberg also depicted the Wild West in a musical, and this one starred Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy. The Wild West never ceased to be a popular subject, though by the 50s it became a rodeo spectacle that came to Madison Square Garden. It's no surprise that the subject attracted Giacomo Puccini, who was a sucker for spectacle. He specifically was so impressed by the number of horses and lots of snow. By the time he was essaying his seventh opera, he was a wildly successful composer and had come up in the world. He was of a poor family in Lucca, a lovely Tuscan town somewhere between Florence and Pisa, and he was the fifth generation of a family of musicians that had been plying their trade for 150 years. The first Giacomo Puccini, the 18th century great-great-grandfather of Giacomo that we're concerned with today, composed 17 masses, 10 tedeums, 22 motets, and 12 lamentations. Michele Puccini, Giacomo's father, wrote operas for Naples and Bologna. Giacomo Antonio Domenico Michele II Maria Puccini, that's his name, was the fifth of seven children born to Albina and Michele Puccini. By the time he arrived, he was the first son after four daughters. He barely knew his father, but it was his father who began to teach him how to play the piano. He would place coins on the keys of the piano board and force his son, who was always interested in money, to reach for the coin, and in so doing, sound the note. It works. Puccini's father died when the boy was five years old. The future composer did not excel either as a student or as a musician even. He was, however, a successful lifelong hunter of ducks and women. He once said, on, on the day I am no longer in love, you may order my burial. For good reasons, he was known as Mr. Butterfly. And as a young man, to keep himself in cigarettes, 
He began playing piano in bars and at a brothel in the Via Dogana. According to legend, Puccini stole from the church some organs, from the, uh, some pipe organs to sell for cigarette money. But he was so talented an organist that he knew how to play avoiding the keys that he had destroyed. His operatic breakthrough came after he heard Verdi's Aida in Pisa, not far away. Legend has it that he walked the 30 kilometers to Pisa. Detractors say that he went by public transport. Verdi's opera made a deep impression. Aida had opened only five years before in Cairo, Egypt, and after hearing Aida, Puccini knew that he would make writing operas his life's work. He wrote that a musical window had opened for him. And our life in Lucca was not easy. The beautiful Roman medieval town dominated by this tower was something of a backwater, very pretty, but a backwater. Though the Puccini family managed to keep up appearances, they were quite poor. The house in Lucca is a museum today and has, among other things, Puccini's first piano. Puccini entered a number of contests, but his, his handwriting was so awful and so illegible, he tended to be dismissed. One piece did make it, I figli d'Italia Bella, the Sons of Beautiful Italy. And his Preludio Sinfonico, written at the age of 18 in Lucca, is one of his first successes. In Riccardo Muti's performance with the orchestra of La Scala, you can already hear the so-called Puccini droop. It was decided that the boy should go to Milan's famed conservatory, but the Puccini family didn't have the money. But they were able to borrow money from a wealthy member of the town in Lucca. The unification of Italy under the monarch from the House of Savoy may have brought a certain amount of stability, but once the euphoria of freedom from the Austrians and Spanish had died down, it became clear that the new Italy was quite poor. It would be a long time before Italy would catch up to the rapidly industrializing France and England. The family sent the young Puccini to conservatory. He was a roommate of Pietro Mascagni, who would find fame before Puccini would with his opera Cavalleria Rusticana. The two lived the bohemian life, which would be chronicled not too long after in La Boheme. But soon Puccini had his first huge success with Madame Lescaut and he was off and running. He was named quickly the successor to Verdi and Rossini and Donizetti. He had succeeded by obeying his own dictum that the theater must interest, surprise, and touch or move to laughter. So he had managed, he had broken the public's hearts with La Boheme and Manon Lescaut, and he had fascinated them with Tosca. Each heroine suffered and the audience had suffered with her 
to gorgeous, sensual, voluptuous music. Laughter would come much later with the opera Gianni Schicchi. Despite the innovations of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud's talking cure, the impressionistic music of Debussy, the sophistication of Richard Strauss, Mahler's extraordinary symphonies, Schoenberg's 12-tone innovations, and Richard Wagner's singspiels, the public definitely wanted more of Puccini's melodies, the older Puccini. He offered eroticism and pure sentimentality. He had more heart than mind. He was never tedious, but he was never sublime either. He kept up with the opera trends of the day. He heard Debussy's Peleas et Melisande and Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire. And he was anxious to venture into new territory by the time he was about to start working on Fanchula del West. He was forever on the lookout for the perfect operatic vehicle. On a trip to America, he attended a play about a young Japanese geisha and her doomed love for an American naval officer. The play was by David Velasco. And though Puccini understood nothing, it moved him, and he knew he could make an opera of it. He went back to his beloved Torre del Lago, which is very near Luca, and he went on to compose. But on a car ride from Torre to Luca, the car he and his wife were in went over an embankment and into a tree, almost killing them both. They did recuperate, but it took a long time. And it was at this time that doctors discovered that Puccini suffered from diabetes. He was still limping and on a cane when he came out to take a bow at the opening of Madama Butterfly at La Scala. The opera that is a staple in almost every house today initially was a disaster. In February 1904, the opera publisher, Giulio Ricordi, wrote in Musica e Musicisti, Music and Musicians, that the opera was greeted with roars, howls, laughter, bellowing, and guffaws. No one could hear the music. Puccini called it a lynching. One paper called it a diabetic opera, the result of a car accident. But Puccini never gave up, and neither did one poet who said that one day la farfalla volerà. One day the little butterfly will fly, and fly she has, into just about every opera house in the world. A few cuts, it helped. It's box office suicide for an opera house to not mount Madama Butterfly at some point. But now, Puccini was once again searching for the next opera. He contemplated Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, stories by Gorky, Oscar Wilde's Florentine Tragedy, and Maria Antonietta. The failure of Butterfly took its toll, but Puccini went into a depression for about four years, during which he agonized about composing again. He suggested that the public was tired of his musica zuccherata, his sugary music. But just now, the ongoing rivalry between the Metropolitan Opera and Oscar Hammerstein's Manhattan Opera Company played in his favor. Puccini was invited in 1907 by the Metropolitan Opera to come to New York to supervise a new production of Manon Lescaut. In fact, it was to be a full Puccini festival with Bohème, Tosca, a grand season, and Puccini would make $8,000 for very little work. The eminence grise at the Metropolitan in those days was the banker and railroad magnate Otto Kahn, who hailed from Mannheim. 
He grew up with a love of music and could play many instruments, but his father had planned a banking career for him, which Otto Kahn fulfilled admirably. It was he who floated the Metropolitan Opera almost single-handedly at the end of every season to offset huge deficits, though he himself could not have a box at the Met because he was a Jew. Otto Kahn's largesse lasted until the First World War, when the American tax system kicked in. Puccini accepted the Metropolitan's invitation, and he and Elvira boarded the Kaiserin Auguste Victoria, bound for New York. The crossing was fog-bound most of the time. Puccini swore he'd never travel again, but Manon Lescaut was a great success, and New York was welcoming. Puccini liked the energy of New York. He loved modern gadgetry. The telephone, for example, and Thomas Edison gave him a gramophone. He did the sights. He bought a new motorboat. He christened her the Chocho San in honor of Butterfly. Puccini also bought a new lancia and a motorcycle and new guns to go off and hunt ducks. Here he is with Tonio, his son, always near the water. While in New York, he also saw the newest play by David Belasco, Lanch Bates, the American Sarah Bernhardt, who had also starred as Madame Butterfly. The subject pleased him, as did the grand production, which involved 32 stagehands to keep the snow falling and the wind swirling around the heroine's cabin. Once he had cut a handsome deal with Otto Kahn to premiere a new opera in America, Puccini tired of New York. He wrote to Sybil Seligman in London, one of the best sources of information about Puccini in his letters is Sybil Seligman. She was an old friend and an old lover who became his confidant, and they corresponded for the rest of Puccini's life. All of this was chronicled by her son, Vincent, in a lovely obfuscating book called Puccini Among Friends. Puccini had probably already seen Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. The Girl of the Golden West was not a surprise, Puccini was intrigued by the Wild West theme. Belasco convinced him that Minnie was an authentic Western character, the lone woman running a saloon with a bunch of miners during the gold rush. Some of us think it more as a grown-up version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> but the basics were true. During the gold rush, the population of California rose from 15,000 to 92,500 in three years. In 1850, only 8% of the population was female, and in the gold mining areas, only 2% were women, which makes Minnie being the only female around sort of possible. Here's the Broadway cast of The Girl of the Golden West, with Blanche Bates in the middle and Belasco on the far right with his white collar. Belasco's production always offered the best theater innovations on Broadway, he was brilliant when it came to lights and stagecraft. His Girl of the Golden West script runs to pages and pages of details of how to light the show and how to get the greatest effects that he possibly could, how the lights should be deployed. The first moments of the play allowed for five full minutes of lights play for the lovers to see. And Belasco wasn't the only one experimenting with lighting effects. There was Flo Ziegfeld. So there was a rivalry between Belasco and Flo Ziegfeld. Plays about the gold rush were a success in New York. An opera about the gold rush seemed eminently plausible to the Metropolitan Opera Brass. Puccini went back to his beloved lake, Massachusetts, 
and tried to concentrate on his work. Not very, very successfully, I might add. This was a play that was set in the Wild West, and Belasco had a background in all this. His parents were Portuguese Sephardic members of a community in London, and they went off to seek their fortune in the gold rush and settled in California. The real name was Velasco. Their son was attracted to the theater and the very young movie world. Velasco came to know a young Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish, and an actress whom he encouraged to take a stage name that he came up with, Barbara Stanwyck. But it was in New York that Belasco came into his own. He produced, he wrote, and he directed over 350 plays. And he founded a theater that still exists at 111 West 44th Street. And it's soon going to be hosting Network in From the National in London. It opens for previews at the Belasco on November the 10th. And Belasco lived above the store with his wife of 50 years and two daughters. Belasco was fascinated with Napoleon, and in that apartment is Josephine Beauharnais' chaise longue. No, I don't know what it was used for. The theater recently underwent a renovation to the tune of many millions. Belasco became synonymous with Broadway. He became known as the wizard of Broadway, and because he wore a cleric's collar, he was sometimes known as the Bishop of Broadway, and he presided over his realm until 1934. So Puccini is back in Massachusetts, that's the lake, and he's having a very hard time settling down to business, and he's, however, happy to be home. He talks about the wind that blows in my way from the sea, free and smelling of salt air. I hate palaces, I hate ornate pillars, I hate styles. I hate the train, top hats, evening clothes. Puccini consulted Sybil Seligman, and she came up with someone to translate the play into Italian for Puccini. And ethnomusicologist Carlos Troyer was consulted in 1909 on melodies of the Zuni tribe. The work went slowly, as he put it, the girl is taking short steps. He was a slow worker. It had taken him three years to write Bohème. And here he had to change a fair amount of Belasco's work and rewrite the last act. Puccini's old and trusted librettists were no longer available. Luigi Illica was occupied elsewhere and Giuseppe Giacosa had died. So Puccini this time was working with Carlo Zangarini. And the reason Zangarini had been chosen is that he was an American and he spoke English. His mother was an American. He was a poet, a journalist, professor of literature, and an opera director. But Zangarini was a slow worker. Puccini was impatient. So they employed someone else, Guelfo Civinini, who finished the work. So it's a joint libretto. Like many composers before him, Puccini went through agonizing times trying to get the words that he needed. And it was all done at long distance because he was living in the boonies. What made matters even more difficult was a tragedy that all but destroyed the Puccinis altogether and I mean the Puccini's, husband and wife. A 16-year-old serving girl by the name of Doria Manfredi had entered the house when Puccini and Elvira were recovering from the car accident. She stayed on for a very long time, putting up with a terrible, terrible, angry, angry lady, and that was Elvira, who never could trust her husband. And even after 18 years of marriage, Elvira had no faith that her husband was being faithful. Anyway, 
Doria's irony seemed to be taking forever. Now, was there something going on? Perhaps a flirtation? We'll never really know. But Elvira began to accuse Doria of having an affair with her husband. Elvira went to great lengths to keep her notoriously philandering husband in check. She once ambushed poor Doria, dressed up in some of Puccini's clothes, hoping to catch the poor girl in a compromising position. She made life absolutely miserable for the girl, continuing to harass her in the village. And Doria, unable to endure this calumny hurled at her by this monstrous woman, finally took poison. She died after three days in misery. And subsequently, an autopsy proved that Doria was a virgin. The Manfredi family took Elvira Puccini to court, and they won. Elvira Puccini was sentenced to five months and five days in prison. The payment of a bribe got her off the hook, and only the payment of 12,000 lire by Puccini to the Manfredi family finally ended the scandal that all Italy knew about. The composer and Elvira parted to the great consternation of their son, Tonio. And so they came together again. They reconciled to some extent, or perhaps to a greater extent. Puccini wrote his wife from America, how is my little nuisance? After all that, I can think of other things to say, but little nuisance will do it. The girl suffered greatly. The Doria tragedy took place one year before Fanciulla opened and slowed down the progress of Puccini's composing considerably. Puccini wrote to Sybil Seligman that he was fed up with Minnie and her friends, that she completely had dried up, and he added, God knows when I will get the courage to work again. He wrote to Toscanini that this was still, he was half mad with despair. But for all the histrionics, Fanciulla was progressing. Puccini was banking on Fanciulla being a success. Think of it, he had to make a comeback after the Manfredi scandal and his long absence from the opera. Belasco's play had the elements Puccini needed. He was all set. It was a grand drama which suited his music. It had an exotic locale which gave the opera composer all kinds of possibilities. Besides the snowstorms and the horses, there was American music in the form of minstrelsy, folk songs, ragtime, jazz, cowboys and Indians, and shoot-em-ups. And for flavor, he also added bits of English. I suppose the classic line is whiskey per tutti, a little whiskey for everybody, and it always gets a laugh. And there is mention of the Wells Fargo agent and the sheriffo. My personal favorite is Hello Ragazzi, Italo-English for hello boys, and just as he had done with Madama Butterfly, Puccini added some American music. Stephen Foster songs like Old Dog Trey, and he incorporated the Camptown races. The Camptown ladies sing their song, do-da, do-da. It's in there. It's in Act One. In addition to Old Dog Trey, O Susanna, Bonnie Lou Eloise, Clementine, Old Dan Turk, Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, these are all mentioned in the Belasco play. Belasco had his work for him, cut out, directing the opera based on his play. Inspired by the work of the great Russian Konstantin Sergeyevich Stanislavsky, he was determined to inject naturalness into the cast, which consisted of 10 Italians, one Bohemian, one Pole, one Spaniard, one Frenchman, two Germans, and one American. Velasco describes the process of getting this band of foreigners to behave like cowboys. 
Men and women by the scores would troop out onto the stage, arrange themselves in rows, and become merely a background for the principals. Then, for no clear reason, they would all begin to shrug their shoulders, grimace, and gesticulate with their hands. I resolved to undo all this at once. I located the ones who shrugged too much and backed them up against trees and rocks, or invented bits of business by which they were held by others. When a chorus singer became incorrigible in the use of his arms, I made him go through entire scenes with his hands in his pockets. Little by little, I tamed this wriggling crowd until they themselves began to understand the value of repose. The play and the opera don't differ much, but I contend the opera plot is better. It's more concise. It's more dramatic. While looking at the opera plot, if you'll allow me, I'd like to fill in the pertinent bits from the play. The miners hang out at Minnie's saloon, the polka, and drink and gamble. To depict the chaos, Puccini's music is seemingly erratic, fast, and then slow, and then fast again. Minnie appears to quiet the scene by shooting her pistols. It's quite an entrance. I think in almost every production, this is the way it's done. This is Jack Rance, the sheriff set apart from the miners. He is married, but he covets Minnie desperately. His definition of love in the play is worth noting. Love's like a drink that gets a hold of you and you can't quit. It's a turn of the head, or a touch of the hands, or it's a half sort of smile, and you're doped. Doped with a feeling like strong liquor, and there ain't nothing on earth can break it up once you've got the habit. It's all the heaven there is on earth, and in nine cases out of ten, it's hell. I thought it was rather a good line. I thought you'd like to hear it. Minnie is a cross between a den mother and a goddess. She keeps these miners gold and runs a combination school and Sunday school. A very pious lot are these miners. That scene comes up in Act 3 in the play, but Puccini uses the conceit in Act 1 to show what Minnie is about from the beginning. Minnie teaches the miners their ABCs and how to count. One, two, three, four, jack, queen, king. <laughs> they get it a little wrong. There's a lovely touch in the opera when the guys all get together to send one of their number home because he misses his mother. Enter a stranger. His name is Ramirez, but he's disguised as Dick Johnson. Knowing about the money that Minnie keeps safe for the miners, he has come to steal it. The two remember seeing each other and being attracted to each other at another time. And hey, presto, they fall in love in Act One. More quickly than in the play, mind you. Turns out Minnie's never danced or been kissed, as she does, however, both of these things by the end of Act One. In the play, it takes a little longer, and Minnie accuses Dick Johnson of being rather forward. Minnie chides her new love for approaching her without prospecting. But she does invite her new love to stop by her shack the same night, and she does plan to sleep on the floor, however. In the play, Minnie goes into high gear now that she's about to entertain a gentleman, and she orders her Indian servant to fetch a Charlotte Rusk. Somewhere along the way, Minnie came across a Charlotte Russe and thinks it's the most elegant of offerings. Much is made of Minnie's primitivism and lack of sophistication. Minnie's take on love is as follows in the play. We're kind of rough out here, but we're reaching out. I take it that's why we're all of us here, put on earth, every one of us, to rise ourselves up in the world and reach out. 
Well, one thing leads to another. And after some polite conversation, the two bed down for the night. But a posse soon appears. Minnie hides Dick Johnson. And lest it's in the men who reveal to her that they got Castro, who is one of Ramirez's men, to talk. They report to her that Dick Johnson is no other than Ramirez, the outlaw. A seething Minnie manages to keep her cool. The posse eventually leaves, and Minnie vents her fury on Dick Johnson, who wisely hurries out despite the terrible snowstorm. While Minnie is agonizing over Dick Johnson's terrible betrayal and nursing her wounded pride, she hears a shot and opens the door to find the wounded Dick Johnson. Needless to say, she takes him in and coaxes him up a ladder to her loft, just as Jack Rance comes back to check out the premises. Minnie then has a tension-filled interview with Jack Rance, during which blood drips through the floorboards overhead and Dick Johnson's life appears to be lost. Velasco swore that the tale of the outlaw being hidden in the loft and blood dripping through the slats of the ceiling was true. Now Minnie does the only logical thing she can possibly do in this instance. She suggests a game of poker. Una partita di poker. She makes this unholy bargain with Jack Rance at rather the minds of Tosca of the West. If she wins at poker, her beloved goes free, and if she loses, Jack Rance gets her. The scene is tight, succinct, with a drumbeat that echoes Minnie's heart pounding. You're hearing Sharon Barbara Daniels in the role of Minnie, and Cheryl Milnes is Jack Rance, and passed out at the table is someone I think you'll recognize.
penso solamente che ti avrò fra le mie braccia. Puccini fashion, we aren't quite told how it is that as Act 3 opens, the miners are about to lynch Ramirez. It seems the Wells Fargo agent caught up with Ramirez after he left Minnie's cabin, presumably after he'd recuperated a bit. So Minnie steps in again, approaching her faithful miners and pleads for her lover, laying on quite a guilt trip. She reminds them all how she took care of them, how she was good to them, and they all look rather sheepish, and in a spirit of almost religious fervor, they forgive Ramirez and elect to let the couple go off into the California sunset to gorgeous music.
Rehearsals for all this went beautifully. Puccini was in a good mood. Toscanini was even in a good mood. And there had been some conflicts before. There was the famous time when, in a moment of generosity, Puccini sent Toscanini a Christmas cake, a panettone. And then they had a quarrel, and Puccini wired to Toscanini, panettone sent by mistake. <laughs> Toscanini wired right back, panettone eaten by mistake. <laughs> but here, everything was a happiness. The mood was lighthearted. Came the premiere at last. Scalpers were asking the unheard of price of 120 US dollars. It was a freezing night in New York, but it did not deter anybody. The press were there in droves, including Cholly Knickerbocker, who wrote a gossip column. The performance went well. They were called out 55 times. Puccini was vindicated. He had doubted that he could make a comeback after his long absence after the Manfredi scandal and, his, and everything else that had happened. He also thought that it was his best opera to date. He wrote Sybil Seligman to tell her so. And he had broken his own mold, composing in a new way that was modern and fresh. The heroine wasn't another sugary little sparrow. She was a sharp-shooting, self-possessed young woman who could take care of herself. And in another departure, this opera had a happy ending. Puccini would compose for another 16 years, bringing us La Rondine, Tritico, and Turandot. It was referred to by some as a great symphonic poem. Ravel later suggested that the orchestra had become the protagonist. There was only one tune, and that was there only to feature Enrico Caruso, and we're going to hear it now. One nasty critic, mind you, did term Fanchula a diabetic opera, but... Here is the one aria, and I think you know who's singing.
Jonas Kaufmann. <laughs> the opera is a tribute to America, to American ingenuity, American inventiveness, and Americans. And I thought I'd leave us with that. And in case you thought this was the last on the subject, the last of the Mohicans became an opera too. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, very much. Bye. That was Nemet Habashi, taking a look at Puccini's La Fanciulla del West. If you want to keep up to date on all of the Met Opera Guild's ongoing lectures and programming, visit us at metguild.org and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. We'll be back with you next week for a lecture on Nico Muley's psychological thriller Marnie. Until then, I'm Stuart Holt. Thank you for listening.